Welcome everyone to Creating a Family. Talk about foster, adoptive, and kinship care. I'm Dawn Davenport. I'm the host of this show, obviously, as well as the director of creatingafamily.org. Today, we're going to be talking about raising an anti-racist child. We'll be talking with Tiffany Jewell. She is a Black biracial writer and an anti-bias, anti-racist educator and consultant. She is the author of a number one New York Times bestseller, which is called This Book is Anti-Racist, as well as the Anti-Racist Kids book, which is now out in paperback. And everyone, make sure you listen to the end because we're going to be giving some practical tips at the end. And who doesn't love practical tips? Well, Tiffany, thank you so much for being with us. I have enjoyed both of your books in the four tips for raising an anti-racist child that Creating a Family did a couple of years ago. We utilized your I think it was this book is anti-racist that we included in our resources. However, I have since read the anti-racist kid book and loved it. So thank you. Thank you for the work you do in this area. Oh, you're so welcome. And thank you for having me here. This is very exciting. I love talking about raising children, my own children and all the other children I've worked with. So this is such an honor. Thank you. We're a match made in heaven because I love talking about (laughs) raising kids too. I really do. Both my own and other people's. So yeah. So yeah, we're going to have fun. All right. So, you know, I think most people would say, or let's hope most people would say that they want to raise an Mm anti-racist child. But honestly, the saying is a whole lot easier than the doing. So I think that's important at the outset that it takes more than just words. Absolutely. I want to start by, I think people don't realize, I mean, we we want to believe that children are innocent, that they see people as people. So at what age do kids notice race? They notice it almost immediately, right? And a, a good part of the reason is because we're humans and young children kind of categorize things based on like size and shape and color. And so young children, babies as young as three to six months, notice the differentiation in skin tone with adults in their lives. They're so used to seeing their caregivers and their family members and the people that they're close with. And a lot of times at the earliest stages of life, it's your family. Um, So people who look like you. And as they get older, it becomes even more like obvious at the differences of people as they go out into the world. And, you know, children as young as babies notice it. And then when they become about three, they really start to absorb those stereotypes and biases and prejudices that the adults in their lives have and that we just kind of impart onto them, whether we are doing it intentionally or not. So really, like children are like never too young to notice these differences. Well, honestly, I I suspect nowadays most people would say I'm not imparting any prejudice to my child. I I don't have any prejudice. I'm not imparting the prejudice. How how are the some of the ways that we inadvertently the society that our children Mm. are, are being raised in, both their families, their schools, everywhere we go? How might that impart that there is a superiority based on the color of your skin? 
Yeah, it goes from which bank teller we choose to go to at the bank. You know, oftentimes people will choose the bank teller who looks more like them to the doctors we choose. Are we choosing white doctors? Are we choosing doctors of the global majority? To the TV shows that we watch with our children, like who are the main characters? What do they look like? To the books that we have in the house, to the the schools that we, you know, if we have a choice to send our kids to certain schools, how are we making that choice? And so like we may not be actively prejudiced and discriminating against folks, but then we have those biases that we may not even be totally aware of. And they're just a part of our everyday with our children, whether we want them to be or not. So we have to, as adults, we have to like actively become aware of them and undo them. And so for me, it's like when I do something like say, it's like, I went to the bookstore and all the books that we bought were by white authors featuring white children. And then I come home and I look at them and I'm like to my kids, like, oh my gosh, like, I'm so sorry. Like, this doesn't reflect the world around us or our neighborhood. And I just purchased these books or got these books from the library without even thinking about who wrote them and and who they're about. And that wasn't okay. So it's okay to like admit those mistakes to our kids too, because they'll be like, oh yeah, you're right, mama. Mm-hmm. Let's go get some different books. And it's like not a big deal for them, right? They're just like, oh, yeah, adults make mistakes too. I should add that you had said that for the most part, children who they are looking at in their earliest years look like them, earliest mm-hmm. months look like mm-hmm. them. In our audience, in fact, we have a lot of, of people who have adopted transracially. So, in fact, those children probably are not looking at a parent who looks like them. Right. Yeah. Have you seen any research or anything that you have seen in your work that the child's race does not reflect the parent's race Mm. impacts how children notice race? Absolutely. So I have not done a lot of research on this because this is not my area of expertise. But I think of Dr. Beverly Daniel Tatum's books, Why Are All the Black Children Sitting Together in the Cafeteria? And she has a whole chapter on transracial adoption. And I think of all the students I've taught in the years and how young children who are transracially adopted often see themselves like the caregivers and the families that they live in. And so they may not reflect the same person. You know, I I know a family I'm thinking of in particular, and the little girl is four or five and she's black and her mom is white. And the other day she said to her mom, like, I want a black mom, you know? And like, totally valid. I want somebody Mm -hmm. who looks like me in our house. And her mom was like, not upset about it. She's like, yeah, I want that for you too. They're doing a lot of work around like her, her daycare preschool where she goes to is black woman owned and run. Mm -hmm. And like for children who don't see themselves in their family every day, like it's an even extra like work that we have to do as adults to not just make sure that we have books where the characters look like the children, but also like having them be in community with people who look and are like them. And so like we as adults have to kind of go out of our comfort zone, you know, like we're doing the best we can for our kiddos. And we have to think a little more about how we're going to, if my child doesn't look like me and the the culture that they've come from is different, how can I 
share that culture and people who look different from me, who look more like my child, how can I share that with them in an authentic way and not just a way where I'm taking from the community, from, you know, black educators or the Asian community? How do I not take away and just become like a part of the community? So it's a whole like other level of thinking that we have to do. Mm -hmm. I would say though, that I believe this topic, this topic is not intended or this show is not intended for simply transracial adoptive parents. Right. This show is intended for all parents, regardless of whether they are transracially adopted, whether the parents are black or the parents are white. I think that this is a show for everyone. Exactly. Yeah. As well as your books are for everyone, I think. Yeah. That's what I'm trying for. Because <laughs> we're all we're all in this together, you know, like we're all in a society where racism exists. We're all in a society where families are not what they looked like on TV in the 1950s, you know, like we're all in these communities together. And so the more we can grow and learn about and from each other, the the stronger we are as a community, which in turn, like, is the best thing ever for our children. Exactly. It's the best thing ever for our country, for our kids. It's just, yeah, it's good across the board. It's just good. (laughs) It's just just good. (laughs) Okay. We will often hear people say, I don't want to teach my kids about race because we're colorblind. We as a family, Mm. we don't notice race and we shouldn't notice race because people are all the same. If you peel back, you know, regardless of the outside skin, everybody bleeds red. So what's wrong with that approach? Or is there anything wrong with that approach? (laughs) So like we do have like skin and bones. Everybody has that. And our outsides are totally different. We have different skin color. We, you know, and it's because of where our ancestors come from because of the melanin that we needed. I grew up in the eighties where it was like, we're all colorblind and that didn't really work for me. And it didn't work for anybody else. And we see like now as adults, we're like struggling to like learn more about identity and how, how to talk about our differences and one of the, my favorite pieces in the, in the anti-racist kid was talking about how our differences are really important and a really good thing. Um, and in a colorblind society, when we're kind of pushing the notion that everybody is the same, like that sounds beautiful, right? But it's not the reality. And so oftentimes the default of a colorblind society too is like the white dominant society. And we're not seeing all of the things that make us unique and individuals. We're not seeing, if you're ascribing to colorblindness, you're not seeing not just who the person is and the struggles and the challenges and the advantages that they have in life. You're not seeing their traditions and cultures. You're not seeing their ancestors. Like there's so much we're missing. And it's really actually quite demeaning to just be like, oh, I don't see your color. And you're like, well, what do you see? What do you see then? (laughs) Like, do you not see that I'm standing here in front of you? I think people mean it to say all people are equal. Right. But But they're not. Well, our society doesn't treat them that way. Right. Would it be fair to say that when we send our kids out and tell them that race doesn't matter, that the little black child they're sitting next to on the school bus doesn't have that experience? Right. Because she sees that in her world, she notices that people are treating her different. And so she would feel so alone by that approach. Right. And because children notice these things, right? They notice those differences. They notice unfairness. 
and injustice so clearly. Like I am raising children who walk through the world as white. And my white children are like very attuned to like kids being treated unfairly and unjustly based on their skin tones and their skin colors because we talk about race because you talk about all it the time <laughs> like since before they could talk we were talking about it because like i really want my children to not walk through the world with like blinders on and looking through like a single lens i want them to see the beauty and the expansiveness of the world which means that you have to like be tuned into the reality and you have to know that everybody is different. We have different skin tones and why our skin tones are different and why they change too, right? Like if you have a black mom and a a white dad, like the skin tone of the family will change. Mm -hmm. But we also want children to know that injustice exists because they see it, but they don't always have the language to talk about it. And if we don't talk about it, they create all of these like mistruths and their own imaginary stories that aren't based in facts and reality because they they need to know why there's mm-hmm. a difference. Well they may also internalize it. They internalize Absolutely. the superiority. The the subtle the our family doesn't see color. Our family thinks all people are equal, but we prefer going to the white bank teller. Right. We live in an all white area. Our pediatrician is white. I mean just all yeah. of those things if we don't bring it out and talk about exactly. it. Right. Yeah. Hey guys, we need your help. I know I say that about other things, but I specifically need, we need your help. We need your help right now in deciding on which topics we should be covering for the rest of this year, but in specifically for 2024. We have a topic calendar that we work on in the fall, so I would love to have your suggestions. You can send us an email and share your thoughts. Send it to info at creatingafamily.org and just say something in the ray line about topics to cover on the podcast or something along those lines. So please check it out. Please send us this information at info at creatingafamily.org. So what's the difference? I think most people, hopefully, again, I would say hopefully, most people would say, I'm not a racist. I don't believe that because you're darker skinned than me that I'm better than you. I don't believe that. I am not a racist. And I think that has colored some of the polarization that I feel it's in our country. That's a whole other topic. But Mm -hmm. some people feel like they're being accused of being something that they find offensive. They don't want to be thought of as racist or whatever. There's many things that I think are Mm -hmm. polarizing, but certainly race is one of them. But how do we address that? So somebody says, look, I'm not a racist, but what's the difference between being not a racist and being anti-racist? Yeah. And and there is a difference. And I always think of like we as humans and people, we have prejudices and biases and it's how we act on them, right? Whether we do or not. But there's also another level where we live in a society where people with different skin colors have advantages and disadvantages. We have systems in place and institutions that misuse and abuse power where some folks with light skin and European ancestry and who are white have uh, greater advantages than people who have darker skin. I mean, just looking at history, we can see this over and over again. And so to like being not racist, like, okay, that's fine. And 
it's not an active thing. Like you're just sitting there being like, well, it's not me. And it's a very individualistic way of looking at things. Mm -hmm. When when we're talking about anti-racism, it's actively undoing those systems of oppression that have been in place. It's actively working on not just yourself, but with your community to ensure that we can get to a place of freedom and equity and justice. Because anti-racism is actually, I, I think sometimes the word anti, you know, the like prefix turns folks off. But in this case, it's a really good thing. When you're <laughs> anti race. something that is bad, it is good. Right. <laughs> That's a double negative or something. Negative. Negative. Right. Yeah. Right. And we loved double negatives as kids. Like I remember learning about negative numbers. And in this situation, like anti-racism is beautiful and it's good. And it's not just something that you personally will work on, but like a whole community and a society can work on together while being not racist is just like you sitting in your house, making sure you're not actively discriminating against somebody, Mm -hmm. which is a very different kind of thing. It's a good first step. We certainly want you to. Yeah. Yeah. It's the essential first step. Yeah. As I read it, what we're being asked to do is go beyond that first step. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. We need to go beyond ourselves because we're community members. There's a whole society that we're a part of and we interact with people and institutions on a daily basis. You know, I think if you have children who go to school and the curriculum doesn't reflect all the children, say something. And it's not just around like race. I think of my own child who I think when he was six, like his class went on a field trip and one of his friends who's in a wheelchair did not get to go on the bus and had to go in a different vehicle. And my kid was really upset by that. And he was like, there are buses where wheelchairs can go on. Why didn't he get to ride in one? And so I was like, well, what, what do you want to do? And so he like wrote to the principal and we talked with her and he was like, you know, every kid in the school should be able to ride on the same school bus on a field trip. Because we all know most of the fun is on the bus ride to and from. (laughs) Exactly. And with your friends. And if we're a school that's trying to be inclusive, why are we like having this very exclusive moment where all the kids are seeing this kid being actively excluded? And so it's really like that maybe isn't an anti-racist act, but it is an act to ensure that there's equity and justice. So in the end, it is going to better our society and our kids are seeing these things. And so we as adults like have to move beyond that. Just like, well, I'm comfortable being not racist. Like the next step is to like actively do stuff. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Got it. So is there a difference between how a white parent and a black parent should approach raising an anti-racist child. I think we want to say that there are no prejudices. I mean, that, that we want to think that, oh, well, you know, if you're black and you've had all the, the discrimination against you, both historic as well as active and systemic mm-hmm. as well as personal, that you wouldn't be raising a racist child. But it can cut both ways. I've talked with black families who have adopted white kids. Mm-hmm. And one of the things they had to address at least a couple of people just said that took them by surprise that all of a sudden they realized how they spoke internally about white parents or white mm-hmm. families or white people. So is there a difference, though? And we're talking the U.S. We're mm-hmm. not talking Africa here. So right. is there a difference between how a white parent and a black parent should approach raising an anti-racist child? So I have trouble like speaking for like what folks should do, but there is a difference. And I think too, of like how I was raised as a black biracial person was different. How I'm raising my kids who walk through the world as white. And part of that is like 
the world we live in and time, you know, 30 years is a good chunk of time for things to change. And knowing like how black folks and Asian folks and Latin folks are raising their children, like we're going to raise the children that we live with to walk through the world differently. So for me, raising children who are white, cisgender boys, a big part of that is not just getting them to notice the injustice, but to also not take up so much space to also like make sure they're being inclusive whenever there are moments of exclusivity to make sure that they are speaking up, whether it's to their teachers or other students or telling me or or their papa, but like letting folks know when injustice arises Mm -hmm. arises and when it confronts them and when it's there and to not just like be silent witnesses who are just like taking it in and doing nothing. Mm -hmm. And if I were raising children who walk through the world as black or black biracial, I would raise them a little differently. Mm -hmm. I always encourage children of the global majority, like take up space, talk first, Mm -hmm. walk through the world because it's yours and you own it. And yes, like you have to be careful in places and situations. But when I'm here, I'm going to let you take up as much space as you need Mm -hmm. because it's yours. And Mm -hmm. you've been asked to be silent and small and quiet for so long, or people look at you a different way because you are running around the playground and being loud when that white Mm -hmm. child's doing the same thing. And it's okay. Like we shouldn't have these double standards for children. And so someone who's raising white boys also being like, not just like, you don't have to take up space, but like, you don't always have to be the first one to talk. You can Mm -hmm. like, let other kids talk first. Or if you notice your white friends are like always jumping to answer, like slow them down a little bit. Mm -hmm. And this goes for like neurodivergence too. Like we all process differently, but also Mm -hmm. like, who's the teacher going to call on? Like, what Mm -hmm. do you notice? Who does your teacher call on more? Mm -hmm. What do you notice about how people react to your friends who are darker in the playground? Do the teachers call their name more? Mm -hmm. Who gets sent out of the classroom? And what can you do to kind of undo that Mm -hmm. for the friends in your lives too? Mm -hmm. That makes perfect sense to me. Yeah. Thank you. I hope you're enjoying the show. I know I am. This is a topic that I need to learn more about myself, and I'm truly enjoying it. I also want to tell you about some free courses that we have at Creating a Family to help you be the best parent you can be to your child. Our partners, the Jockey Bean Family Foundation, has supported this and allows us to bring you these 12 courses for free. You can check them out at bit.ly slash jbf support. That's B-I-T dot L-Y slash all one word run together, J-B-F support. And tell a friend about him as well. All right, now we've come to the practical tip section, which is always my favorite. I'm just a person who really, I, I can absorb things theoretically, but where I find empowerment is when I, I'm given practical ideas. All right, so let's share some practical tips for parents when they're raising raising their child, regardless of if they're white or black parents? One of the things I love that my friend Britt Hawthorne, who wrote the book Raising Anti-Racist Children, Practical Parenting Guide. I love her book too. I have a piece in it, but it's also like 15 different caregivers are sharing. But one thing she's always reminded me of in working with kids and raising kids is that we need to make sure we are system blaming and not people blaming. 
Oh, that's such an interesting way to say that. I like that. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah, it is. She had a beautiful story about like just noticing how the sidewalk in a neighborhood was all cracked and crumbly and made it hard to walk on. And she was talking to her her son about it. And, you know, we could be like, oh, people aren't taking care of it. But instead it's like, well, let's let's figure out what department in the city takes care of this and call them and let them know like the sidewalk is cracked so the city can fix it. Like this is an institution that takes care, like the department of transportation or infrastructure. And so it's doing those little things. So when you have like, I think of like, there's so many stereotypes around people who are unhoused, right? It often lies on them, like like they don't want to get a job or they're lazy or something. But really talking to our kids about the inequity in housing, in mental health care, there's so many different avenues we can go to that and really just like humanizing people and really putting the onus on the systems that are supposed to take care of us that aren't. And that has been like one of the most practical things (laughs) that we've done as parents, as caregivers, whenever it comes to our kids having questions about the world around them or sharing stereotypes that they've internalized or whatever it is. Yeah. An example, I'm thinking about your son and his friend in a wheelchair not being able to attend. There's a reason for that. And the reason is that Mm -hmm. those buses cost money. It would require getting a new bus. And that means there would be decisions that would have to be made. If we spend the money on this, we don't have the money for something else. And what a great learning opportunity. I mean, Maybe what it is, is doing a fundraiser, right. you know, not that, that a child, you know, lemonade stand is going to raise enough. However, right. it raises awareness. Yep. It might raise awareness for others in the school who can raise more than just lemonade stand could. Right. <laughs> yeah. And that's a way of not blaming that the principal just doesn't care about this right. child to the fact that there is actually a reason why we don't have this bus. Yeah. When this bus was bought, either they were too expensive or... Maybe they weren't very good at that time, or maybe people just overlooked it. You know, they did. Yeah. All of those possibilities. Yeah. And to do that work or or when I work in schools, we'll talk a lot about climate justice or racial justice, like all of these things. And one of the things I always try to do for young folks as an adult, I have more power because we live in a society where children are not bestowed with like the power that adults are just like off the bat. And so it's like giving up that power and being like, well, what can I do for you? What do you need from me? Or, hey, you know, our school needs solar panels. The other schools got them and ours didn't. Who do we need to talk to? Let's invite the mayor to this school. I can do that for you. So it's also looking at where the power is and how to like redistribute that a little bit. My favorite question to kids anytime is like, what do you need from me? Because they're incredible problem solvers, much better than I am because I get like stuck in the weeds. And so if they're like, well, we need you to contact this person, I can do that. Yeah. So that's also like a very practical thing. Like, just give up a little power here and there. We talk a lot about collaborative problem solving. And mm-hmm. uh, that's an example of collaborative problem solving. You know, it feels to me that our country has gone backwards. I think it's probably mm-hmm. a necessary step in order to take the next step forward. 
But it feels like now any conversation about race is avoided. Mm. I mean, I think it's avoided between adults, particularly yeah. adults of other races, but even adults of the same race. I can't speak for black people, but I can speak for white people. And I certainly mm. are, or at least my circle, people are afraid of those conversations because they're afraid that they're going to make a mistake and say something. And I do think that's a step backwards. Like I said, probably a necessary step, but nonetheless, a step backwards. But I see it in families, too, that parents are avoiding conversations about race because they don't know what to say. With conversations between adults, I think there is more the fear that they're going to, you know, open their mouth and say something right. bad and they're going to be canceled or they're going to hurt somebody's feelings. They're going to say something wrong. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Within families, I think it's just that parents don't know what to say. So they avoid the conversation about race. Right. So we're on the practical tips section. I guess the tip is don't shy away from conversations right. about race. Exactly. But within the family, let's say the family is not a transracial family. So right. Let's say that it is white parents and white kids. How do you start the conversation as a parent? Or how do you make opportunities, which I always think in terms of look for the opportunities for having the conversation. So how, what are some of the opportunities? How do you raise the subject about race? Yeah, because it's, it's going to be messy. It's messy. It's messy. And like, we have to start somewhere and being able to admit that to your child too. Like I made a mistake or like, this is new to me, but for caregivers, I always encourage folks to understand who they are first. And especially for white folks, it's Layla Saad's book, Me and White Supremacy. She also has a young adult version, which is like even more accessible and has a lot of great language and vocabulary. So white folks in particular, folks who are light or who are not black can feel confident in talking about race. And so I love that book and will recommend it like all the time. But for kids, you know, it's just pointing out when something is unfair and unjust or letting them do it because they notice that way better than we do. Mm -hmm. And then talking about it and querying, like, why do you think that is? And calling them out if they're sharing a mistruth or a stereotype and be like, well, actually, that's not accurate. You know, and you can go into history. It depends on the age. Mm -hmm. There are so many books out now mm -hmm. about skin color and anti-racist positive books you want to mm -hmm. with young children especially you want to be really affirming and give them the language to talk about their own identities it's so important and that's why like in the anti-racist kid the first section is all about identity and understanding who you are and talking about who you are and exploring that and children are very aware of who they are, what they look like, what they like to do, who they are, but they don't always have the language. And so it's sharing that with them and mm -hmm. letting them do that work of like, I don't want to say labeling, but it's what I'm going to use, like labeling themselves, right? Like giving them the mm -hmm. power to identify who they are and not just being like, well, you are a boy and you are white and this is like you, but being like, here's here's what people like you call themselves. Like here's the language that we use as a family and being very open to it, shifting and changing because 
kids are like super dynamic, maybe even more so than us adults. They're oh, constantly so. trying things yeah, out. Absolutely. It's part of child development. They should be exactly. doing that. Yes. Exactly. And it's really beautiful. And it's also as an adult, as a caregiver, you're just like, wait, what is going on? But no, they're going to be okay. And the more they get to explore, like the, you know, we think of, we always let toddlers explore out in the world and touch the grass and they'll eat the clovers and they get dirty. And it's like the same thing with language and identity. And so we have to be able to give our children opportunities to explore. And it's also okay if our children's identities are totally different from our own. You know, like we may look the same, but then the things they like and they love and they care about are going to be totally different too. And that's okay. Mm -hmm. You know, I think of like, in the 80s and 90s, white folks are calling themselves Caucasian and now it's white. And so like you just the language we use changes. Or for me as a, a black biracial person, you know, when I was young, it was like mixed or, you know, mm-hmm. other. Right. Yeah. The language changes and to not impart all of that onto our children too. Like I don't say to my kids like, well, when I was your age, I just called myself an other because mm-hmm. then like they're like, well, maybe I should too. Yeah. You know, and so really like living in that now moment with our children too, and not getting so hung up on what our past, like what we called ourselves in the past. I don't hear people getting hung up on that as much as Mm -hmm. they used to, but I certainly Mm -hmm. remember when people were, well, everything's changing. Is it African-American? Is it black? One thing we could teach our kids is that, does it matter? If somebody asks to be called something, you call them that. It doesn't matter. They get to identify. If somebody's name is Peter, you don't call him Pete without saying, do you have a nickname that's Pete? Right. And exactly. they say, no, but I'd like it. Or no, I'm not a Pete. Yeah. Or as one of my daughters was called a nickname, that was a very common nickname. She was, she, her name is not Katie, but it, it's a common nickname. And she mm. was like, I'm not a Katie. Right. I mean, I mean, just no. I mean, because Katie was the most common name in her school. There was already three other right. Katie's in the class. It was like, <laughs> okay. Yeah. And she's like, no. <laughs> No, right. don't, don't do that. Unfortunately, she was saying it to her grandparents, but still. No. <laughs> yeah, worked. and that's the thing that we as adults can do is just honor our children. Like, what do you want to be called? What are the pronouns you're choosing? Like, how do you identify? Like, really honoring that and using their language when we talk about them, too, is so important. And letting them know, like, this is new for me, so I might make a mistake. And you can call me out on it whenever I do can be really just like, we'll help them to feel whole and to know that they can trust us too. Mm -hmm. I am so proud of a resource that Creating a Family created several years ago. It is a curriculum. And of course, it's for foster, adoptive, and kinship families since those are the people we serve. But it is an interactive training or support group curriculum. We have 25 topics in the library. Each of the curriculum comes with a video, a facilitator guide, a handout, and then an additional resource sheet. It is absolutely terrific. You can use it as a training for foster adoptive or kin families, or if you're running a support group, it provides the skill building component. It can be done online or in person, and it's interactive. We pause the video into three parts and discuss each part afterwards. It's really terrific. So you can check it out by going to our website, and our website is creatingafamily.org, and hover over training and click on support group curricula. Thanks. 
Okay, we've come now to one of my favorite topics. I love, love, love children's literature, and I think mm-hmm. it is one of the most powerful ways that it, in any in any topic, any subject, but today we're talking about race, and I think it is one of the most powerful ways. So one of the things that I want all of our listeners to do is take a look at their collection of children's books, or if they are a family that doesn't buy books, then a collection of when they go to the library, what mm-hmm. they get. And what we're wanting to see, or what I would want you to see, is that you have a wide variety of voices and colors. And I'm going to name a couple of specific things mm. that you should be looking for. One, you want to have some of your books have black main characters that are positive. The hero, the kid who saves the other kid, the kid who's kind to the dog or whatever. You want to have, regardless if your child is black or white, you still want to have diversity. You want to have Asian, Latinx, East Indian, indigenous main characters. And show these characters in everyday life. The book doesn't always have to be about race. It could just be, you know, a kid Mm -hmm. going to school and being afraid to ride the school bus and getting over it. Another thing to look for is black and white kids who are crossing the racial divide and showing positive interaction across differences. And another one is a mix of books that in the past as well as the present. I think it's good for that as well as a mix of fiction and biographies. And indeed, as you had talked earlier, books that specifically talk about racism Mm -hmm. or anti-racism. That needs to be in your mix. And just the last thing I'll throw out is to emphasize authors who share the same race as their characters. I think that's another Mm -hmm. important thing. Now, those are the things that I think people should look for in books. Let me stop talking and let you (laughs) share some things that you think are important about children's literature. I absolutely love and I think it's so important for you as an adult, but also for the children to be able to do research on the author, right? Like, is this an authentic story? Is the character like reflective of the author? Like, do they know who and and what they're writing about? I think that's so important. And something like my children, when we go to the library or the bookstore, like they flip to the back of the book, right? And they're like, who is this author? Where we'll like research on our phone. But also for me, like, I taught for many years in a school that was predominantly white middle class. And my classroom had majority white students. And almost all of the books that we read as read-alouds or that were displayed were by authors of the global majority. And my students never felt less (laughs) or guilty or sad about that. They could see themselves in these books no matter who who the authors and the characters were Mm -hmm. and could relate in ways. And sometimes I would point it out and sometimes I wouldn't. And I have like very specific, like I think of the author, Derek Barnes, who wrote I Am Every Good Thing and Crown, an ode to the fresh cut. And his books are so beautiful and empowering. And he's a black man and his books feature black children. And they're books that like, I've never met a kid who hasn't liked his book. He probably has great illustrations as well. If they're for the illustrations are incredible, and just the story, like they're super relatable. Getting a haircut for the first time, right? Very relatable for many kids. Whether it's a shape up at the barber or your parents doing it (laughs) in the kitchen with a bowl stuck on top of your head, right? Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) you don't even have to always draw attention to it either, right? Yeah, 
Yeah. And then for books too, I also look at when they were written and published. You know, there's so many amazing books that I loved as a kid, but I never saw myself in children's books at all. And do I need to like have a whole collection of my favorite books from when I was a kid? Not really, not anymore. So what can I supplement? What can change from that too? So we're reading authors that are very present and have had similar experiences to children who are a lot like living today or who are kids today. Mm -hmm. And then I also like, there's a lot of great books that are being independently published but they don't get the same marketing or yeah. show up in bookstores and libraries in the same way. And so that requires some research, but looking at going to like your local independent bookstore and being like, who are some of the local authors, you know, that you love and asking librarians and bookshop owners for help because they're like very tuned in to like mm-hmm. who's writing books that will meet the needs for your family too. Let me suggest, and, and by the way, we will be including links to all the resources that we have mentioned in the show notes. But I want to mention three. There are many others, so this is in no way an exclusive list. However, we have resources for finding great children's books that focus on all the things that you've mentioned and I mentioned. One is, and I will include links to it, Diverse Book Finder. Another one is The Brown Bookshelf. And the other one is The Conscious Kid. And I think all of those are really good sources for finding diversity in books. And like I said, we'll include the link. Yeah. And I have more I'll share too. Like I love the Jane Addams book awards for I think oh. it's Jane Addams for social justice I think or peace, peace awards. And they have such a great selection and collection of books that are really beautiful and empowering. And I think on their website, they also have like how to find specific, you know, how to look for books that promote justice and, and peace. Right. And you're taking it further. Mine was really more focused on race. So you're right. Yeah. You should take it further. Good point. Yeah. And so, yeah, if you'll share that with me, I will include yeah, absolutely. that in the show notes. I need to do a shout out to Hopscotch Adoptions. They have been a longtime supporter of Creating a Family and this podcast, and we so appreciate their support. Hopscotch Adoptions is a Hague-accredited international adoption agency placing children from Armenia, Bulgaria, Croatia, Georgia, Ghana, Guyana, Morocco, Pakistan, Serbia, and Ukraine. I love reading those out. It's just, it's melodic to me. They specialize in placement of special needs kids, including kids with Down syndrome. And they also do a lot of kinship adoptions for people who are adopting kin in these countries. They place kids throughout the U.S. and offer home study services and post-adoption services to residents of North Carolina and New York. Okay, so we've talked about my favorite subject, which is... (laughs) children's literature. You've alluded to some other things, practical tips for parents. I'll say one and you'd be thinking of some others. The one you mentioned earlier is use professionals of color, of the global majority. Seek out doctors who are of a different race than your family. Or if you're a transracial family, seek out doctors that share the race of your child. Mm. Seek out dentists, dry cleaners. I mean, it doesn't just seek out professionals. And I have never thought about the bank teller part 
uh, mainly because I go through drive-in. But nonetheless, <laughs> that's such an interesting point of mm-hmm. noticing for yourself if you are automatically getting in the white teller's line. Right. That's such an interesting point. I've never thought, now I'm going to have to start thinking about yeah, it. Yeah, or the good. checkout line at the grocery store, right? Or a Target or somewhere. Like, who do you go to if you're not doing the self-checkout? Whose line are you more apt to go to? Is it because it's shorter or it's because who's like ringing you up and just checking with yourself about that? Yeah. All right. Any other practical tips you can offer parents? Yeah. So because we're caregivers and we have like school age children, I like really encourage you to build a relationship with their teacher. And like as an educator, that's really like a hard thing too. And and post COVID, like schools are still trying to figure out how caregivers and schools can be involved. Again, I know that a lot of schools want family engagement, but aren't sure how to do it anymore. But mm-hmm. volunteering to make, you know, to cook with the children, to read to the children in the classroom, like become a community member, know who your kids' friends are, but also like, so you can become another adult that any kid in the neighborhood can be like, hi, like I know you. It, it's a really fun, beautiful thing. I love whenever I'm like at the grocery store or at the YMCA, like there's always a kid, I work in a lot of schools, but there's always a kid who's like, Hey, you were in my class. And to have that connection with another adult, you know, I live in a community where a lot of the teachers in our schools are are white. And so for kids to be able to have like a, a black biracial person or somebody who looks like them is really lovely. Mm-hmm. We know that Schools are school boards and library boards are becoming con- very contentious. There's a oh, lot of like book banning and there's a lot of line- wanting to control this curriculum. And it's awful and it's like incredibly frustrating. But to I go to our school board meetings, they're all like virtual still, but to not just know what's going on, but to to be a person who's like negating the negativity, right? Like to talking about the positive changes that we can make as a community or why it's so important that we aren't banning books about gay kids and trans kids and black kids and Latin kids and Asian kids. So doing that work is really important. And especially for like white folks, like you have a lot of power just in being white alone. And so use that power to and really center our children and what is important for them mm-hmm. and what they need is it's really lovely too to know that like you're actually a part of a community for change in a positive way. Mm-hmm. I second everything you just said. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, Tiffany Jewell, for being with us today. I highly recommend the book, The Anti-Racist Kid. It is now out in paperback. And I will say that I love the illustrations, the graphics. The illustrations were, I liked them very much. So so Nicole Miles was the illustrator. I'm very picky about children's (laughs) literature, as you could probably (laughs) have guessed. And so when I say that, yeah, I'm very picky about storylines, graphics, the whole thing. So so anyway, thank you so much for being with us today. I truly appreciate it. It was great. And, you know, I feel like we could talk for hours, (laughs) but (laughs) we won't do that. (laughs) We could, actually. Yes. (laughs) Thank you.